and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, joined by my dear friend and colleague, the Reverend Dr. Michael Berg, and uh, and not joined, I realized. We must have just been thinking old school. I didn't even tell Jason we were recording. Is he even in town? I don't even know. He was here yesterday. Oh, he was, um, okay. But that was after, so we, Michael and I were teaching is it still called J term? Is it just I'm, winter term? I'm winter, it's winter term. Because it's not just January. Mind. We started in December, um, and you have worship right now, Christian worship. Yes. And I have Pauline epistles, four hour intensive courses in the morning. Um, so we've been here, and Jason hasn't had to be here every day. He was here yesterday, um, but we talked about recording and then nailed it down after. And I forgot to tell him. So Jason, if you're listening, which I'm sure he is, because he's probably like. What in the world? I didn't know we were recording. Um, we're sorry. Um, we could say we miss him if we want. Do you want to say that? or Do we want to say we miss him? Or Oh, we miss him, yeah. Okay. Michael misses you. Um, but we're we're going to be sitting. He, he's busy. He's doing, he's doing, doing grad work stuff. You're not to be here every time. I'm not here every time. Right, exactly. I am, usually. Usually, uh, yeah. But uh, but there's times you weren't. But once I teach you guys this, yeah, there, there's times you weren't for a long. That's period. right, That's especially right. for the Zoom when you guys knew how to do the Zoom. So um, now we just got to get. We're gonna teach Jason the Roadcaster. Okay. Um, or you used it now. If you I times. can use it. Okay, it's so fine. we're good. Um, but yeah, so no, no Jason because I'll say because of my oversight. Oh. Um, but it was just naturally convenient because Michael and I are both here at the college teaching, and we're gonna be talking today. So. I um when I have to be traveling a lot, so I was traveling for the holidays. Um, I've been doing a lot of driving. Otherwise, for stuff, I like to listen to Audible to audiobooks, and they had a fair amount of C.S. Lewis at one point that was free that I downloaded. Um, and so I've been on a binge, a C.S. Lewis binge, and then a, a biography of the Inklings, mm-hmm. um, and uh, been really enjoying it, and um, watched uh, Surprised by Joy again, and. Uh, I don't know if that's the name of the documentary about his marriage, but um, the, he writes that book, mm-hmm. right? And I, Joy is also <clears> the woman that he, he then marries later. Uh, not, I, I'm going to rewatch the new one that just came out, the re- most reluctant convert. But anyway, so I've kind of been kind of binging that because it's it's something that the thing about Lewis is you can kind of follow his train of thought while doing something because he's just that accessible. It's not that the thought's not deep; it's just very accessible. One of the things that <clears throat> stood out to me, um, especially as you're talking about Lewis's conversion and then his relationship with Tolkien and the, the Inklings, was the theme of Christian myth. And both Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, um, so they're both um, Oxford <coughs> dons, right? Or was it modern college or something? But um, <coughs> they're both uh, teachers. And they both love kind of northern mythology in, in Europe. Tolkien obviously tries to like reproduce this, create his own um, mm-hmm. mythology uh, with the Lord of the Rings stuff and the Hobbit. Uh, but as as Lewis was debating Christianity uh, with this love of myth, he supposedly was talking to Tolkien, and Tolkien says, "Well, yeah, of course, Christianity is myth. It's just that it's the only true myth." Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> and this is one of those things. Um, so on a much Lesser scale. I'm not saying we're Tolkien and Lewis. But I think even in our time teaching together, in our friendship before that, but especially teaching together, 
where there will be things I'm sure that come up in my teaching or writing where if someone knows Michael, they would go, oh, that's a Michael yep. idea. Like Wade's taken that, he's internalized it, he's run with it, and it's become yep. part of my thought. I don't know that I can say for sure oh, that's for happened sure. in return. I would say not only part of your thought and your thinking, but uh, even phrases and mannerisms and stuff. And and these are, are things I don't think either of us feel a need or even are always conscious enough to like cite each other on yeah. anymore. Yeah. It just becomes part of how we operate. And, and that really, that kind of Christianity as myth, you see pop up in so many ways in Lewis's, both his nonfiction and his fiction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Lewis's fiction is like more self-consciously, explicitly Christian, for instance, than Tolkien. It's there in Tolkien, but... What Tolkien didn't like about, for instance, the um, Narnia stuff was how explicit these things right. were made in Lewis. Um, you couldn't miss it. Yeah. And so when we say... You could try, and people have. Yes. But, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, when, I, when I say kind of the Christian myth or true myth, um, what I, what I want to... We'll get into the main topic, just I want listeners to get. What we're not going to be saying is um, kind of like a neo-Orthodox, like yeah. demythologizing of Scripture... Um, not that it doesn't matter if Jesus rose or not. That's the opposite of what Lewis meant. Um, but how, the way I think of it, if I'm understanding him correctly, is it's like the culmination of story. Like you take the great stories that have kind of sprinkled up throughout different mythologies and religions and kind of the culmination of it, the, the greatest one, the one that some others were maybe shadows or echoes of, yep is Christ in his resurrection, and explicitly the, the resurrection. Uh, Lewis was sometimes accused of being a fundamentalist, right? Uh, sometimes in our circles, people get a little bit dismissed because, well, they, they didn't come from our circles. I don't think it happens a ton with Lewis. It definitely happens with Bonhoeffer. But sometimes with Lewis, you'll hear people act like, well, he held these really kind of out-there ideas, and there were times, like, Lewis would have fun speculating, like, did animals have souls or whatever else. But when you actually, like, read on the the life of Lewis and his basic, like, fundamental core beliefs, he really did take the Bible um, on its terms. And he even, like, evolution, he's like, this is, um, you know, this doesn't fit how, how some people are trying to make it fit. And I'm not <clears throat> talking macro, microevolution, right. whatever. Um, so I do want to say, right, this is not in any way a diminishment of what Christianity has to say, but what we'll be talking about, I hope, is how it actually, um, for Lewis, it, it makes it even more serious. Absolutely. Okay. Um, with that, we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. You can go to 1517.org, find lots of good stuff there. They just had their end-of-the-year fundraiser. Um, I think they did meet their goal after Giving Tuesday, so that was good. Uh, as well, um, for the year, I think you may still be able to give over there if you would like to, but you can also go get the free articles daily. Um, publishing houses there, bunch of podcasts, good stuff you can check out. And Michael, would you mind giving us our disclaimer? The show doesn't speak for our churches or church bodies or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. 
And that brings us to our main topic, which, um, again, is Christianity as true myth. And maybe just as we get started, as for explanatory purposes, uh, I can just take a paragraph from uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a work I had found, um, Lewis on the Gospels is True Myth by Bruce Young. <clears throat> uh, and uh, this is a, a paragraph talking about what, Tolkien and, and Lewis maybe meant by this, or at least how Lewis took what Tolkien said and ran with it. Um, but uh, he writes, But that night at Magdalen College, Tolkien persisted, what if the Bible, especially the Gospels, recounted myth, but instead of myth coming as fragments of truth through darkened minds, myth presented by God himself? As Tolkien may have explained it then, certainly as Lewis himself came to understand, this most assuredly did not mean the gospel writers were deliberately writing in the mythic mode. In fact, that mode was alien to their way of thinking. They were presenting straightforward accounts of events they had experienced so that we can, in Lewis' view, call much in the gospels reportage, though it may be, no doubt contain errors. Pretty close up to the facts, nearly as close as Boswell. And that's a quote there, so don't worry about that part. God, Lewis suggests, did not author the Gospels directly. What God had authored were the events themselves, and Tolkien is imagined by Carpenter to have explained, while pagan myths were in a sense God expressing himself indirectly through the minds of poets, in Christianity, the poet who invented was God himself, and the images he used were real men and actual history. Um, not a, uh, the beginning sentence in the next paragraph, maybe. What we have then in the Gospels is a human account, no doubt an inspired human account. So as any Christian would confess, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote their Gospels as human accounts, but they were divinely inspired to do so. Um, myth that had become fact. right? Myth that had become fact. And um, I think it's in, is it God at the Docks? God in the Docks? Oh, what's the name of the essay collection? Um, but... Um, there's an essay in there, and Lewis talks about uh, how the Jews were the last people that you would expect, like this God dying and rising to come out of, because while pagan mythology had a lot of themes like that, and you know the, the seed goes into the ground and mm -hmm. comes again, the phoenix and, and stuff like that, um, the Jews didn't have that tradition. And yet it's from the Jews, right, that the incarnate God dying and rising, the ultimate account, um, comes. And what I think Lewis is then basically arguing is that you, you see in all these other mythologies um, echoes of what becomes a true story and fact. Um, and maybe even in as a way as, like, as God is like, prepping humanity for what is the best story. Not that, that these are spot on, but that these themes, and as I listened and read to that, I thought about when you've talked about, uh, Michael, and I know, I think Craig Parton has done work with this as well, um, with like uh, aiming for the head and the heart and the, the power of, of story. Um, and so... That's kind of the idea here of, of what I thought we might talk about. And I'll throw it to you to anywhere you want to go with what I've said or thoughts you have. Yeah, there's quite a few things bouncing around, uh, maybe some preliminary things. 
<clears throat> one good question to ask, and it's, it's an unanswerable question from an anthropological point of view, um, although I, I think some anthropologists would be would would dismiss some of the options I'm going to give forth here, but there is there are themes that are repeated throughout different mythological stories from around the world. So a flood story, um, there, there, some sort of hero that comes, a knight in shining armor, um, a savior, messianic figure. There are hints of resurrection kind of stuff. Uh, there's creation myths. There, there's these kinds of things. And so what are, your, what are your options? Without looking at evidence, what are your options? Well, one is that there was an original story um, uh, that may or may not have been true for, for the sake of the argument. Let's say it's, it's true. There's a story of Genesis 1 through 11 <clears throat> that is told and retold and, and gets changed as people go to what we call the Orient today and uh, the southern part of Africa and Europe and all over the place. But there's still kind of like this kernel of truth. That's one option. Another option is cultural borrowing. So we just share each other's stories. Um, and then they be they become similar over time. Think Disney <coughs> movies. Yeah. Like, here's a great story from somewhere, and <coughs> now we kind of make it our yeah. American story as well. And then uh, the third option is that there's natural inclinations of all humanity for a cleansing, for uh, for uh, an explanation of where we came from, for a hero, that kind of thing. Um, cultural borrowing is probably the one most people are going to say. Well, that that's you know we can look at some of the evidence that seems we we don't have to have like a god, an original story with that, but but that's not fully I think explanatory of of all the stories that that are found throughout the the history of the world, like there's certain stories that there's no way there would have been cultural borrowing between these groups. So I, I think there's a good say movement to say, Hey, there or a good idea to say a lot of these things are just natural, right? We, we need, we need cleansing. We need a resurrection, seed time, harvest, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but I wouldn't dismiss that there was an original story, right? And that it's all three, right? There is cultural borrowing. There is a natural inclination for, for desire for these stories. Um, I do like the, my second preliminary thought is the genius of, uh, of God and the uniqueness of, I think, Scripture over against other, let's say, quote-unquote, holy books and stories. There's quite a few things we could say. One is about inspiration, that Matthew still had his, his personality come out on the pages of Scripture, but it was still God's Word. This is something different than what Islam teaches about direct dictation from from Allah to through Muhammad, this is something different than a poet saying some sort of mythical story. We don't like it. Doesn't really matter in Buddhism if these stories are true or not. Or if Buddha was fat or skinny, he was probably skinny. Or if he lived, or he actually that's not the point. It's not a historic religion like like uh, the monotheistic religions are. <clears throat> and so that that's one way. It, it is unique, and and I don't think it's helpful when people outside of the church say. Well, it's all myth or it's all... No, there's quite a few different categories and differences there. Along those same lines, I think what's genius of, of especially the New Testament, this is true of the Old Testament too, is it reads like people are just telling you what happened. Right? It doesn't read like a mythological story. It reads like a newspaper account. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Scripture is full 
of this imagery behind the actual reality. So instead of writing a myth, mythological story that's clearly saying something, and sometimes something very profound about humanity, think of the, think of the Greek mythology, but it's clearly mythological to tell us something about ourselves. <clears throat> that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is say, here are just the facts, don't read between the lines. This is how we moderns want to read Scripture. But the genius of, of Scripture is it is actual history, and at the same time, there's pictures behind it. And so I have no problem, and, you know, people are going to save your accusations of allegory for a different, different time and location. We can argue about that later. Um, <clears throat> but you can at once say, David actually gave, you know, fathered Solomon who actually built a temple and that that was all also a picture of Christ. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a little bit what C.S. Lewis is after here by saying this is the, the this is true myth as in it's historically true but it says something deep about theology and humanity as a good myth ought to do. Yeah. And if you think of um, myth in the general sense, right? Normally a myth is a story. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not trying to say something real. Yeah. They're, they're often meant to be explanatory. They're, they're in fact meant to be explanations of reality to it, help us understand what is truly real. In a way that a newspaper account or a chemistry textbook could not. Exactly. Or just even empirical observation. Now, often they're drawing on wisdom from empirical observation. But um, but they are getting at a reality. And I think that's part of what Lewis is bringing out. And, I, and it brings to mind to me, you know, that Paul again and again and, and John in his gospel will say things that are getting at that everything that's true and real is true and real in Christ. Christ is the the logos, right? All things were made through him, are upheld by him. Um, think of Colossians and, 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 and um, uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians and, and what is, uh, how do we discern things in a, in a meaningful way beyond simply the, the material. Um, and, uh, and so all that is real is real in Christ. All that is true is true in Christ. And I sometimes... When I talk to students about this, they'll kind of look at you like, well, 2 plus 2 equals 4 isn't true in Christ. And, and you say, well, of course it is. It would yeah. not be true right. outside it. of Christ. It's not that only the, the believer can do math. Right. Um, but insofar as the believer, the unbeliever is doing real math, he or she is doing real math uh, in, in Christ. And you can apply that to morality too. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> and Lewis does, right, um, as well. And so I think this is not just helpful in an ap apologetic way or in an evangelistic way, um, but it also, if I dare get a little liberal artsy, is, is I think gets at why Christians sometimes consciously, sometimes instinctively over the centuries um, still cultivate the study of great books, Right. Or say um, they do, at least. Yeah, but, you know, what is, there, there's always been the kind of Tertullian streak of what is Athens to do with Jerusalem. But the, when the church really came into its own and, and had the, the 
time to found universities and schools, and we have the development of the Western canon, um, you still have these Greek and Roman myths that are fascinating. When Luther's going to um, go off to the monastery, right? Didn't he take Virgil with him, mm-hmm. I think? Uh, I could be wrong on when he takes Some Virgil book, with yeah, him. Yeah. Um, but uh, these are still compelling stories. Uh, Kelvin, I believe, does his master's thesis on Seneca, which isn't mythology, but it still doesn't seem very Kelvin-like to right. be focusing on this. Um, and part, I think, of the draw is that these stories do get some things right about people. Mm-hmm. Now, what they what Homer celebrates is not always right um, like, in the like Christian we say, sense. We say very often... Much of this, they ask the right questions, but don't always come to the right conclusions. Yeah, so. but the but the themes yeah, get yeah. at important things um, about human beings and who we are and what we do, and maybe that's a helpful way to get at. For Lewis, the biggest theme was the dying and rising God. You know, the seed that's buried and then now it bears fruit. Um, but 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 Christ and his resurrection as, as the story. And all stories then are real or true insofar as they um, reflect or echo this true story. You could, I, I could see somebody actually even saying this about evolution, which is a meta-narrative. Um, it's, it's a theory, <clears throat> and I'm not dismissing all of evolution, but it is an overarching meta-narrative, and it's about life. Right. And the cycle of life and it's about survival. I mean, it is it is ingrained in everything that we do, and I think that's why Price says that Well, it's and even you, you look at, at things um, that obviously I would not endorse for say like a hyper nationalism or a fascism. Um, anti. I'm against that. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear. Say um, that again, you're you're anti anti fascism or you're no, anti I'm against hyper nationalism or, or or fascism. Okay, so you're not a fascist. Right. Yes. Are you Antifa? <laughs> See, I knew that was coming. <laughs> Anyways, I just want to be clear. But you, you get these kind of totalitarian ideologies that develop, even communism. Um, and what does part of it become? Well, yes, they're, they're here and now, and they're largely focused on the material. But what's going to make the nation great? Well, the hero- heroism on the battlefield. You're going to sacrifice yourself for the nation so that the nation can live or rise. What is communism? It's like this Hegelian, right, pro- cycles, progress um, towards this, like, end. It, with it, whether or not, um, you know, the communist truly believes it will be utopia, utopia, towards towards something. Well, why can people be drawn to those things in what becomes a dogmatic way? Think about almost all the isms that we can become dogmatic about. And here again is something where I'm probably taking something from you, Michael, that you've hit on. There's something in the ism that is rightly attractive. It's just it's been perverted in the ism. If, right? It's been, it's been twisted. Um, so you, you take like the corporate, you know, the corporate nature of society and fashion. Well, it is to be in a body, to be together, right? To be one with each other. Well, there is something in in the great story about that, um, but that's a corruption of it. The kind of utopian um, uh, narrative, you know, in, in Marxism or communism, 
well, there is something coming that will be, right, utopian, and it will also be material as well as spiritual. We were talking about this in class today with 1 Corinthians 15, is we often, like in English, we say spiritual, and we assume that means not material. But for God, the boundaries between spiritual and material mm-hmm. are not nearly, how does he come to me with his spirit, but through material means? So there is something attractive in that. Um, and that's not to say these things um, are uh, consciously playing on the account of the resurrection. But it is to say that there is a reality of what God had planned from the beginning for mankind. Um, and to some degree, as things echo that, that's rightly attractive um, as story, mm-hmm. right? And and I, it might be weird to talk about some of these isms as story, but they are narratives, right? Yeah. They they do shape a, <clears throat> as much as I sometimes get nervous about the word, a worldview, yeah. right? A way yeah. of understanding things. Um, and and I think that's fascinating that Lewis and Tolkien pick up with that. And, and even um, both of them, Lewis with science fiction and then with Narnia and then Tolkien, obviously with his Lord of the Rings, um, kind of create worlds of their own to play with this in. Uh, This is where The the Great Divorce um, is uh, one of his weirdest but most interesting works to me. And, um, right, the idea is, is this purgatory what's going on? It's it's, it's hard to say. But, like, you have these people that are either, they're choosing heaven or hell. And, okay, we're not going to get Arminianism, whatever. Mm -hmm. Lewis is telling a story. Mm -hmm. It's a dream he had. But um, experiencing heaven is to become more solid. And that's fascinating to me because I think most, even just American Christians even, would think of um, experiencing heaven as becoming less solid, like more transcendent mm-hmm. and, and so, quote-unquote spiritual. Um, but for, for Lewis, right, to be in God, to be in Christ is to be Solid, and there he means even like to have body, right? The the people who are less solid, like the grass hurts them, right? Like they're they don't have the solidness to to appreciate the real world. Um, but the sun kind of hurts, right? It, it's not you can't bask in the sunlight. And I think in him talking about Christianity as true myth, another helpful connecting point from a Lutheran perspective for me, um is, right, myths are inherently um, trying to explain um, what we would, what we would, you know, the natural sciences, this stuff here and now, um, but in a way that goes beyond the natural sciences and says, here's what's behind that, here's the meaning of that, Here's how that is meant to relate to you horizontally horizontally, and vertically. And I think when we talk about Luther and um, his emphasis on the earthy, not just on the divinity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ, on vocation, on the arts and music, there's a lot of um, connection there. Not I don't think Lewis was necessarily reading Luther. Uh but a reminder for us as Christians too. And this is where it's kind of fun when he talks about the Gospels. You talked about their historicity, and, and Lewis absolutely 
he, he says for him, the proof of their historicity is sometimes they just throw in random facts. Right. And so he loves to use the account of they're going to stone the adulterous woman and Jesus writes in the dirt. Well, what if people love to do with that account over years is to try to guess at what he's writing. And Lewis is like, well, we don't know, but they just decided, well, that's what he did, so we'll yep. write it down. Um, and so it's not that he, again, as I, I read earlier, he in no way is saying the gospel writers were writing true myth. The gospel writers were writing what happened. Yep. But in the midst of what happened is God culminating his story. Yeah, and and something very important here, um, when it comes to the testimony of the apostles, like, we can call Jesus our foundation, but technically he's the cornerstone and the foundation is the apostolic testimony. And like this happened, this is here, right? Um, but in our modern world, again, we've talked about this before, that we try to, we over, we look over words and, and, and they're static and they, they don't do things. We put them under a microscope, right? And And so we learned how to conjugate and... Mm-hmm. Break apart a sentence and and uh, ruined reading for like third and fourth graders. Yep. Yeah. And it's necessary you to do that, and that's that's especially when it comes to you know, studying scripture. Um, but the words are on a page, and we look at them, and we should actually think about them as things that move and do things. And so, <clears throat> this this very this was what happened. This was what happened. This was what happened. It's like reading a newspaper. Okay, and I just recycle it. But this story, because it is the culmination of everything and it's supernatural, yeah, and it's God's word, so it's going to create something out of nothing. Our words can create states of affairs, um, but his creates actual things out of nothing, right? So faith in a dead heart, a world where there wasn't a world. So then these words then, have the, as we said before, can be, literally true but also allegorical in the correct sense and mythological in the sense that it tells us something about humanity and it's a culmination of this story that has cosmic effects and not just effects for 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 tomorrow with that said too i think the other genius is that it pulls you into the story and makes the story yours right and so we can see this with mythology that uh, you know, I, I can take the I can take um, um, the Odyssey and repackage it for 20th century America or Star Wars. Uh, I mean, we we yep. do this still things that have a canon and you nerd out about. Yep. Yeah. Um, and but yet we'll take it the next step with Scripture because <clears throat> you're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest that worship has an element there that we don't really think about that this you're coming into the presence of God, you're dining with him, um, you are being absolved by him. These are things that are happening to you. Uh, it's not just I'm going there to learn or I'm going there to pay homage, but actually I'm being a part of the story, right? I am the one who is being saved. I am God's one. workmanship. He is yeah. he's dying and rising me yeah. again and again. And so I become a part of the story, right? Uh, and... And a good myth does that, but what a normal myth cannot do is make that reality for me, let alone reality for my eternity. Yeah, 
a regular myth can only go so far to say, I relate to that. I can imagine myself being that character. I can learn something about myself and the world from that. But that's as far as it can go. With the true myth of the Gospels, I die and rise and am Christ's workmanship. I taste, I taste heaven. I become more real. Yeah. I, yeah. And right, that's exactly more right. More solid. More real and more solid. And so, and th- this is kind of interesting too. So <clears throat> I've been, this has come up a couple of times in, in a class last few days. Um, this concept of you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. What a, what a, what an insensitive, strikingly obnoxious thing to say in our culture right now. Yep. And, uh, and, and would be, would trigger a lot of people when you say your body is not your own. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this with first Corinthians 15 today yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, and, and could get a lot of people out upset real quickly and maybe even rightfully so. So the, the, the idea there then, um, is you belong to God, your life belongs to God. You don't have a, you don't have a choice. You didn't choose it and you, you can, you can play God and try to take that life, but it's not your life to take it, we can go down that, that path for a long, long while. So then what's the solution? And wh- why, are we so, why are we so keen on becoming our own people? Well, yeah, it's just because of rebellion, the same rebellion of Adam and Eve and the, and the Tower of Babel architects. But it's also because God made Abraham's children free, mm-hmm. and we are free. And so we, it's, it's the same way of being a parent as a teenager. Right? Yep. And and they're learning yeah. to be what it means, yeah. And so, but the, I think that the symbol is very helpful here. So, if my freedom is just to just to be whatever I want, that actually may be just slavery to sin. So, if the opposite of sin is righteousness, and as Paul says, a slave to righteousness, because if you're a slave to righteousness you're not sinning and if you're sinning then you're actually a slave to sin you don't have there's no middle ground then to belong to god to be at home um is actually freedom yep. it just doesn't look like freedom from the eyes of the sinner and and i think that's that's something similar to what's going on here is i'm being a part of this story becomes my story instead of i just write my own story Right, and you're immersed in it rather than authoring it. Yeah, you're not the author of this, right? And that that hurts my ego, and it hurts my American sensibilities. But the truth of the matter, it's 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 truly, it's true freedom and true love and true righteousness. And to 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 your and CSS's point, more real. Yep. So the more I am with God, the more real I actually am even though my sinful nature says, no, you'll be real when you're authentic and on your own. Yeah. Um, there's, there's some good stuff there. And, and there's in the, in the great divorce, like this great scene where this guy had loved this lady and now she's, uh, she's a solid person. She's in heaven and he's died and he's in hell, but they, they're like taking this bus trip, whatever. Uh, anyways, <clears throat> he can't get over, like he's like, but you're mine. And she's like, well, I'm yours, but I'm everyone's, right? And um, she's, right, in heaven, the, the boundaries we think of now, in class today it came up because we're talking about kind of autonomy, like what will our bodies be like in heaven? 
and you know someone asks, uh, "Well, will I be me?" And well, you'll be you, but you won't be your own. You know, well, what does that mean? We can't wrap our head around yeah. it. I love the Bill of Rights. We've talked about we're fans of the Bill of Rights, but so much of that is about my body. What my body being protected from all these these things? Well, what is what is true love in the scriptures? We did First Corinthians thirteen also, and um, it's such a beautiful chapter that we just ruined um, by making it like a Beatles song. Um, but true love is self-giving and it's vulnerable. True love removes boundaries, autonomy, so to speak, um, and gets lost both horizontally and and vertically. And I think that is fascinating to think of. Well, if we're thinking of heaven and what we will be like, well, what was Christ's body like? Christ's body is given to me. You know, it's not, he doesn't go, no, that's my body. Um where where his body ends and where I begin in relationship to him, it's it's you can't. There's not a there's not a demarcation, and I I do think um, that is I think a fear sometimes people have of heaven is getting immersed in it rather than it being what they want it to. Mm-hmm. I fear that sometimes, right? Sure. I want it to be this. I love these things. I want it, um, and yet. Part of what we see with the scriptures, as you hit on, is we're immersed in them again and again, and God is preparing us maybe for this immersion, right? That that we won't be lost. This is not like nirvana for the Buddhists, where we're like a drop in the ocean. Right, we're being and non-being. But we will be once. known, right? Yeah. We will, and be, we will know, and we, we will, will know. know. Yeah, yeah. You said something interesting that I think maybe we can hit on in this um, part two. So myth, classic mythology, we've, we've talked about is getting at something real. It's telling a story to get at something real. And how does it draw the person in? Um, sometimes these myths were written down, and so this isn't to say that it can't be a textual thing. But the story captures them, and as you said, you can, they can see themselves in this story. Um, and then it, it gets at something true. But it gets it not just by appealing to their intellect, and certainly not... Um, by abstraction, but the point of myth is to draw them into a story that's meant to be taken as right. Um, we was there really an Achilles? I don't know, but you know what? When you when you listen to Homer, you're supposed to get immersed as if you're watching this happen with him. Um, and I don't know if this is like a post Enlightenment thing. I don't know if this is just a post printing press thing. Um. Luther certainly addresses it with Erasmus, that God is not an idea. Um, but you hit on this when you talk about how we can come to a text, Michael, and that's uh, that we can try to conveniently separate ourselves from it. Here's the text. Here's me. Yeah. I'm going to think about it. Yeah. And what classic myth does is kind of like what a good movie does. Or even it, a song. It draws you in, and it's not that it doesn't appeal to your intellect, but it doesn't do it through abstraction. <laughs> Like when you're watching a movie, if you're watching the movie going, that didn't really happen, you're not, why go watch the movie? Of course, maybe it didn't happen. But the whole point is I want to like check out and check into this story. I, you know, I'm sucked in. Um, you know, no one watches a fight in Marvel and goes, people don't really have those superpowers. Right. Um, you're into what this, and, and it has meaning. Even though it's fiction, it has meaning. And... um. 
And maybe I think part of what Lewis is getting at too with what the scriptures do and a particular temptation, especially for American Christians, and I do think post-enlightenment, and I do think being so heavily influenced by Arminianism where you share the right data so that someone makes the right decision. Or you manipulate them into a decision. Right, that, um, that part of what Lewis is getting at that is helpful for us as Christians to remember is that Christianity's story is not just aiming for you to stand over it as a textual critic. Christianity's story is making claims on you, and it's aiming for your heart and your mind. Um, and that's what we, what our fathers meant when they said the scriptures read you. Yeah, and that it's true myth just means I might, uh, you know, Thor and Odin and and Loki, all this I might read about, and there might be some things that I can. F- that I can learn about myself from that story. And so I say that story is helpful insofar as it says true things about me. What, the, what Lewis is saying with the scriptures is the scriptures are truth, yeah. right? That they're true myth. It's, they're not just helpful insofar as they're saying something true. They're true, and they're not just true in the sense of like, I agree two plus two equals four. They're true as in they're solid. There's substance. They are the thing the true Christ of which everything else is a shadow. And for the Jews, this was the sacrificial system that we think of speaking that way, that that these things were a shadow of things to come. You, so you, you don't mean like a platonic shadow. You mean like an Old Testament foreshadow. Yeah, and I, I think platonic could maybe play in a little. But Paul also says, right, when you were Gentiles following the elementary principles, which is like the word in Colossians, I believe, for the alphabet, like there were the basics that were there, but now you now you've been brought beyond that. That I think there we can use maybe some shadow talk. Um, not in a sense that I mean the scriptures can say Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, um, but that these things were. Um, these stories are more true in Christ than apart from Him. Is that fair to say of myth, maybe, Michael? Sure. Um, and as we've both taught world religions, and I think there's things in there where, that you go, that you talk about and you say, okay, what, what in this, and I have them do assignments, what in this resonates with you? Yeah. And a lot of what resonates, whether they realize it or not when they're unpacking it for me, whether it's a Christian student or a non-Christian student, a lot of what resonates, resonates because it sounds like Christianity. Yeah. And even non-believers in the West are usually non-believing in Christianity. Sure. Well, in at least our right. part of the West. Yeah. I don't know if it's fair to say that or not, but it is that it is a Christian can read Homer better than the non-Christian contemporary Greek could. I think there's some truth to that, right? Because, <clears throat> not to sound overly like arrogant or pompous, but you have the answers. Right, and not right. just read it intellectually better. Right, yeah. The yeah, the the questions are always almost always the same. Now, sometimes you have to write, you have to ask the right questions. Yeah, right. Um, but you ask the right questions because you kind of know the, the the answers where it's going to. And so, uh, I I think from a Christian point of view, um, yeah, you do you do have you do have a have a better way of understanding even the non Christian myths. Right, um, because 
you see the questions being asked. And we, we said that you've said this a lot, like Marxism was good as a diagnostic tool. Uh, and I've carried that to say, you know, like all of these isms and ologies have a kernel of truth to them, or at the very least they ask the right question and they're, they're not going to answer, have the right answer um, because they're, they are human. They maybe get real close, but they're they're human philosophy, so they're going to be misguided at some point. So if you, if you have the if you have the cheat sheet, <laughs> yeah, right, and you know you're spiritually discerned, then you can you can ask the right questions, and you can you can have the you can guide the you can, you can guide the 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 pagan myth sort of guides not the right word, but you can you can say ah they're onto something here they're yeah. onto something here. And here's where they go off the rails. Think about with with reason, you know, like we're trying to figure out how do we know what we know? Well, is reason autonomous? Well, no, it can't be. Um, and so you're trying to figure out, well, maybe it's just, you know, I have my phenomenon in my brain. You have your phenomenon in your brain and just try to get along. And well, that, that's not how you live and that's not workable. Seems to me that there's an outside source called the Lugus. Uh, right, so I can look at these philosophical debates and say, "Hey, I actually is there? There is an answer here." And in fact, you live as if this answer was true. I say this a lot in apologetics. People live as if Christianity is true, mm-hmm. even when they say Christianity is not true. So they'll say, "Ah, no, we're just bodies. We're not souls." But then you use words like courage and love. You actually believe that there's a soul. <laughs> You live this way, right? Right, and I think this is what you're after here. Yeah. yeah, we we can we can. How about this? We can name the things that are unnameable in a lot of these mythologies. Like we we can't put our finger on why there's such a thing as love, or why there's such a thing as uh, a resur- why why we have a desire for a resurrection. Um, we know it's there, but I can't I can't label it. I can't give it a name. Uh, Christianity can give it a name. And and I think a lot of these like things that have a canon like. Whether it be Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, um, a certain people science fiction author, you you know you pick the thing. I think part of the draw is that is it's one of the few spaces where we get wiggle room in our in our culture today to do the metaphysical. Yeah, and we don't necessarily know we're doing the metaphysical. No, nope. nope. um, but this is I think um, I remember when people first you see popping up like Bible studies on a movie. I remember being real leery on that. Like, yeah. okay, now we're just trying to be trendy, whatever. But And I've seen a few people do it very well. Yeah. And one way in which it's grown on me, if you're picking the right thing, um, is I think you can do this, where you say, okay, whatever is powerful because it says something true about us in here, whatever resonates because it, it echoes some greater good, well, that's, that's that in Christ. Yeah. And I think there is an opening there. Um, and I think that's too, we talked about at Christmas, we kind of joked about, well, did the Christians steal a pagan day or, or whatever else? This is, I think this is also partly wh- fine why we are okay with taking your holidays. Yeah. And maybe we'll take more yeah. if we want to. I like to. these memes that are out there. Like, uh. be careful. We may, we may take Memorial Day or something. Yeah, because there are sometimes... Uh, Things that are powerful connection points. Gene Veith wants to make Labor Day Vocation Day. He has not succeeded, but, you know. I'm open to it. Yeah. As long as we still talk about unions also. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I hopefully we made sense today for those of you that are no, listening. I think it was good. 
Um, but I, I, I just, I find this to be really fascinating as I've, I hadn't picked up on it as much when I'm reading him piecemeal, but when I'm just kind of going through, um, it stands out. So maybe it's something we return to in some way. I guess if you have thoughts, I'd be interested in, in hearing them. I think we still have an English department here at WLC. Yeah. We, we're, st- we're still holding on to the liberal really, arts. We really does Lewis and Tolkien, though. No, but they're very competent. Yeah. Good. Although they have done stuff oh, sure. with Lewis and Tolkien, but I mean, yeah. Um, maybe if one of them wants to come join us. Well, we invite them very often. We do, yes. We invite a lot of people. Nobody wants to come. Jason doesn't even want to come, apparently. Not even here. Um, all right, well, we thank you for uh, um, talking some myth with us. Just disclaimer again, in case our ecclesiastical supervisor listening, we're, we're not saying the Bible's not true. Yeah. When we say it's true myth, right. we're saying it's true. No, we want to keep the... Want to keep the myth in there? We are not demythologizers. And exactly. A couple of if someone myths. has to be disciplined, though, Jason's the one who told me to do this. Yeah, I don't even know that. I don't think you. I've never even heard you say true myth until Jason was saying it. I'm not sure Jason even <laughs> believes that half the Bible is actually. And he, he definitely seems leery. Yeah, I've I've heard him question Genesis. Yeah, um, yeah, First Corinthians 15. I, I. One time I was flipping through his Bible, and I didn't even see it in there. Did he cut it out? I'm wondering. Yeah, he's a big Thomas Jefferson fan. Who isn't? Yeah. The, um, all right, we're joking. Don't kick, don't kick Jason out of our church, buddy. <laughs> I mean, or, or do. I mean, it's not a huge deal, I guess. It doesn't either. bother me. Right. We have to call someone. But yeah, actually, let's keep him around. That would be a lot that's of paperwork. That's a real, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So um, we thank you for, for tagging along, for listening. We hope you had a great Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We hope you're still enjoying the Christmas season, right? We have Gentile Christmas Epiphany coming up here soon. Um, rejoice that this, this, this true myth of the gospel, this true story that makes all truth true, that makes all realness real, that makes things solid is your story, that it's for all people. Um, And join us then, I would ask, in Letting the Bird Fly.